Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'm speaking with Anna Brodsky. Anna is co-founder of the Global Redesign Institute, a child care activist and advocate for structural satyagraha, the design and implementation of infrastructure which supports and rewards nonviolent behavior. We talk about the meaning of structural satyagraha, American inventor Buckminster Fuller's term Dymaxion, Project Cybersyn, and their love child, Dymaxin, open source cities, education, childcare as the regulatory subsystem of the community, post-scarcity, open access governance, and holistic approaches to the future of society. Agora Politics is dedicated to upgrading our outdated theories of politics. Doing so requires honest and forthright engagement with not only academics, entrepreneurs, and intellectuals, but luminaries of all types who are tuning into the zeitgeist and attempting to synthesize stories of the past with knowledge of the present and visions of the future. With that being said, I give you Anna Brodsky. Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Anna. Anna, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for welcoming me to the show. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. And uh, we're going to get into our main topic today, which is your work with the Global Redesign Institute. Um, but first, uh, I wanted to ask you some things a little bit about where this idea came from. So you have some... Uh, introductory videos and various things that you've recorded to try to get people more familiarized with Global Redesign Institute. But how do you self-conceptualize the project? Okay, that's a really good question. Um, well, I guess me thinking about it all kind of, can you can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're all good. I hear myself weird, but cool. Um, the whole thing started when I was at a zeitgeist are you familiar with the zeitgeist movement at all? Uh, no, not as a movement. Okay, but you you watch the movies. I mean, I know what zeitgeist means. <laughs> I don't okay, know yeah. Anything well, else then about it. that's pretty much all you have to know. It's okay. you know, it means the spirit of the times, right? Mm -hmm. So I was at a um, an event which was all about kind of moving the spirit of the times towards a higher degree of functionality in terms of public health. And um, at this event was um, this person, this activist named Peter Joseph, and he gave a presentation on uh, Project Cybersyn and Stafford Beer. Are you familiar with, Proje with Project Cybersyn? Uh, no, not entirely. I was introduced okay. to it when I was looking into your work, and that's my first time hearing about it. Okay. Well, it's super cool. Basically, I think it was something in the 80s in Chile, and this uh, this guy called Stafford Beer was trying to create this system of uh, which would facilitate direct democracy by making all regional data um, accessible to the to the members of the community in question. Mm -hmm. And the idea with that would be that then people could vote directly on policy, as opposed to which I think is called referendums. Am I right when the people are voting directly on policy, but while also having all of that 
information to in that way give their informed consent instead of the uh the goddamn mess we have today um and so i was i was very very interested by that and um it that's kind of what got the ball rolling for me um yeah okay okay so uh, i wanted to ask you this uh, about this uh, about this word you have then that's related to Project Cybersyn, uh, which is um, dimaxin. Yeah. Uh, so this is described as a transitional step on the way to economic emancipation of communities mm -hmm. and the liberation of all classes from access inequality and its resulting social problems. Yes. Um, this word is a combination of the words cybersyn. Uh, as well as Dimaxian. And Dimaxian is another word uh, which comes from Buckminster Fuller, I believe, uh, mm -hmm. which means the dynamic maximum tension. Uh, it, yes. So it's sort of a way of doing things that, uh, from my understanding, is trying to eke out the maximum amount of efficiency in terms of your application of force and the result that, uh, that comes out of that. Um, yes. Do you want to just describe what the word dimax dimaxin um how, how this related to your conception of the work that the global redesign institute is doing well i chose the um, i chose the name because i thought the global redesign institute was a bit of a mouthful and also because that is associated with um uh, a sort of a pre-existing concept that i actually was not terribly familiar with when i got involved with it i had just been making um you know, like I think many people in their own communities, I just sort of been wandering around looking at things and imagine how imagining how they could be optimized. And um, I did a little video about it. And the next day, someone was like, Oh, hey, can you speak about the Global Redesign Institute at our event? And I was like, Yeah, sure. What's that? And so I kind of started working on my own um, on my own kind of understanding of what I thought it could be. And, uh, you know, the result is the the project that um, I'm here to talk about today. Um, but then somewhere along the line, I realized that sort of like a previous discourse around the name had already kind of started to happen. So I thought I should come up with a new name. And I am uh, a big fan of Buckminster Fuller. And um, I see a kind of a beautiful tragedy in some of the things that he would say about because he had things so clear in his mind and never really got to see those ideas take hold in a dominant way. Mm. And so I chose that word, not just because of the meaning, of course, but I wanted to choose a word which had to do with Buckminster Fuller um, to sort of pull my idea of him and the meme of functional equality that he sought to perpetuate into the present and into what I'm trying to do here. And then, you know, cyber, and then the sin at the end of that is a nod to Project Cybersyn and all that it sought to create, because it's unclear to me whether uh, Stafford Beer, the, you know, the Project Cybersyn guy, was trying to get everyone to a point where we could be um, you know, voting directly in referendums with all of the uh, data required to do so in a responsible and informed way, or whether his angle was like, if all of the people in the communities have the data, then they can choose to elect political officials um, in a more informed and consenting way. Uh, either way, I think the, 
the the first idea is the more functional in terms of uh, the integrity of the democracy in the community in question. Mm. Um, but you know that was really the first time that anybody that you know that anybody that I know of uh, took a stab, like a meaningful stab, at um, at attaining a level of like access and what's like the opposite of disenfranchisement um, i mean you could just say enfranchisement or uh okay par- participation or uh stake uh, even all, all great ones yeah well the first time that somebody took a stab at elevating the level of enfranchisement and equality through um you know a very technical way that seems to deal directly with the things which are coming in between communities and um, and public health inequality. Mm. Um, so one of the other taglines that's sort of associated with this uh, with this concept here is uh, to facilitate what what you call structural satire, uh, and I'm I'm probably going to butcher this structural satire uh, sat- satyagraha, the design. That was- in- that was awesome. Can you try that one more time? Uh, sure. Structural sat- <laughs> satyagraha. I like it. Is that correct? Um, why not? Sure. I well, say satyagraha. Why, 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 why don't you tell us how you pronounce it so the listeners know? I'd say satyagraha. Satyagraha. Okay. But, but words Which, are just words. And it's mm. fun to play around with them and make them our own. So the design and implementation of infrastructure, which supports mm-hmm. and rewards nonviolent behavior. Um, what is the connection between nonviolent, uh, nonviolence and uh, its incentivization that you're talking about with structural structural uh, satyagraha, um, and the broader goal of the uh, of establishing um, dimaxin, dimaxin? I think that's a really great question, and um, a complex and challenging question. So um, hopefully, it's going to be. I'm going to be as efficient as a- at answering it as I think I'm going to have fun answering it, if that makes sense. Mm. Uh, so the connection between the two, well, basically, Dimaxin um, is a, an educational platform, is how it would start, uh, which seeks to train communities to kind of step into their power in terms of agency and enfranchisement with regard to um, the development of the infrastructure which supports the communities. So uh, particularly um, in an economic sense, you know, where economics means, you know, literally originally derives from the word oikonomia, which is Greek for management of the household. Mm-hmm. Um, not like the weird bastardization, which is all like numbers and debt. Like that's not that's not real economics, you know? That's like, that's debt economics. That's trash economics. Nobody's interested in that. That shit's obsolete. But um, so Dimaxin is seeking to economically empower communities. And that's why the idea behind that is um, all of the regional data being made available, people can then see like what's going where and make choices about you know oh i i want um like okay well which method of manufacturing whatever thing that we as a community decide we need whatever type of infrastructure it could be whether it's a waste disposal system an agricultural system or an educational system um, when we're laying the infrastructure to create these um these institutions these these things 
um, these features of our economy. Where are we going to source our resources from? Um, you know, what is the most regenerative and sustainable practice in which we can con uh, that we can use to to build, basically, and um, and. You know, and, and in this way, we're dealing with the allocation of resources and with an, an open source and open access economy where everything, all data is available, everything, most things can be automated. I mean, that's just the reality we live in today. But with the idea of most things being automated and most um, and most uh, economic information being open access and open source, we really set the stage for uh, for a very for a potentially very egalitarian community with a very high level of public health because it will be very easy for people within the community who want their community to have a high level of public health to allocate resources in such a way which facilitates that and it's in the best interest of everybody in the community um, and then so that's why we have the why I coined the term structural satyagraha because it's the idea of coding nonviolence into um, into an economy and of course economy is the uh, foundation of culture so by nonviolence then you mean not just the absence of physical violence but also other forms of economic coercion is that correct absolutely um, I forget who it was but it was probably Gandhi um, because he was the one who invented or who, who coined the term Satyagraha. Um, because funnily enough, even in Sanskrit, which I think is one of the oldest languages uh, that we have on record as, uh, as humans, we don't have a word for nonviolence other than, other than the negation of a pre-existing concept. Um, you know, in, in Sanskrit, we have ahimsa, which is the opposite of himsa. So it just means like no harm, whereas himsa is harm. And when Gandhi was coining the term satyagraha, he, you know, what that means is the force of truth. So it's, uh, it's not just sort of being passive and, it's, and submitting, but rather to go forward in a way which elevates the, the you know, whatever the truth may be in that situation. And you know, that takes into account the idea that the fundamental truth of all people is cooperation, really, because that's, you know, that's what's elevating us to be the best that we can be to really step into our power as individuals and communities to attain greatness in a way which also uplifts the planet. Um, you know, when everything's working together, that's that's the one, you know, when everything's all competitive and shit's falling apart and, you know, everything's on fire. That's that's not the one that's mm. not like the ultimate truth of us, although, you know, a pessimist and perhaps a realist would say that, you know, perhaps that is going to be the truth that we're left with. But it's not the ultimate one. And um, so I, I use sat structural satyagraha because it's this idea of public health, you know, that all that stuff that I just talked about, that's a, a very high level of public health in the sense of a community, but also in the sense of the global community. So it's the idea of the, you know, the support and impl the implementation of infrastructure, which upholds public health and then framing it in that context of nonviolence, the force of truth, it really brings to mind, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, uh, Dr. Pickett's work, um, you know, who wrote The Spirit Level, but are, are you? Uh, I'm not totally familiar with it. I mean, I've heard of it. That's about it. Okay, cool. Well, basically, the idea like, in that book, there's a lot of um, a lot of studies 
detailing and showing how um, high levels of income inequality are directly correlated to high instances of uh, violence and antisocial behavior and basically a very low level of public health. So it's this idea that um, economic equality supports and upholds um, a, a very sound culture and a mm. high level of public health. Yeah. Um, well, so one of the things that I'm struggling with as far as terminology right now is mm -hmm. this use of the phrase public health. It's triggering all these uh, associations that are uh, actually rather negative for me right now, just given the circumstances. Um, Tell me but about I that. I understand like more broadly what, what you're getting at. Um, what I mean by that is just uh, it seems to me as if um, the institution of public health is sort of rooted in a particular kind of ideology, which is that you can sort of propagandize a population into um, compliant behavior uh, and that this compliant behavior is dictated by a sort of top-down planning of what uh you know a group of usually technocrats uh might think is best uh for them or that they should be doing and given the public health failures uh not only in the united states but also in other places around the world with the with the pandemic that's now an endemic um i think that's a word that has just come to to have so much pollution involved in it that it's very hard to talk about these problems using that exact phrase. But anyway, this is just semantics. Um, no, that's actually, that's actually really, uh, I'm really glad you brought that up. I have some, like, I have a response to that. Are you cool for me to respond to that? All right. Awesome. So yeah, I mean, they, they hijacked it, didn't they? The bastards, they hijacked public health and just like they hijacked economy, you know, economy, deriving from the Greek economia, management of the household, supposed to be management of the household, right? Done effectively, that means that every room in the house is well furnished, well heated, etc. But what have we got? What have we got? We've got a situation where we are depleting the resources from all of the household to over furnish the attic to the point of collapse. So they hijack that one too. They hijack democracy. There's mm -hmm. nothing democratic about voting there's an ambiguity there that we don't have to dive into but about the process of voting for people who all went to the same school who've probably never set foot in your neighborhood and if they did it was just to like to get out like throw some trash at a beggar and get back into their limo and then like you know they're deciding what kind of policies affect your neighborhood no that's nonsense it's trash it's not democracy and the same for public health like public health is something that needs to be determined by the by the level of satisfaction. And I don't just mean like, you know, emotional satisfaction, but in terms of like needs, human needs being satisfied, being met of the community. It's not just some abstraction that people can kind of vomit at you and we have to accept that. Um, so that, that's, that's nonsense. Mm. And, uh, but you know, all that happens when, um, when these terms get hijacked for the greater evil is that we have to come up with new ones. And, uh, and that's fine, you know, that's the kind of beautiful dance of uh, oppression and uh, an uprising of control 
and domination and liberty. And, you know, that's, that's, that's a beautiful cycle if we can find it in our hearts to enjoy ourselves and not get demoralized and stay creative, which of course is difficult to do when you're locked into a nine to five and, you know, your, your rent and, the, you know, the livelihoods of your children are on the line. You're stuck in survival mode. It's a lot harder to get into creative mode. Uh, but, we, you know, we, we got to try, right? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, one of the other methods you can use uh, to sort of get around this is reappropriating these terms, right? So mm. by the use of our public health in this discourse right now, we are in a way trying to attempt to remove it from those more negative associations that have laid claim to it, right? And of course, maybe you have positive associations if you're, you know, for example, working in public health right now, you probably think it's great and that you're doing a, a good job. And we shouldn't discount the people who are doing honest, good work there. Um, that being said, uh, you know, this is another, another tool that we can use. There's also reappropriation. You know, I was listening to the, uh, the Kanye West's uh, new Donda album last night. And uh, one of the tracks on that is named No Child Left Behind, which of course was a disastrous uh, educational policy implemented by the Bush administration. Um, I don't know about that. Will you tell me about that, please? The, the, the policy, No Child Left Behind? Yeah, sure. So no, no Child Left Behind um, briefly was just an educational policy uh, that was implemented uh, during George W. George W. Bush's presidency um, by the Department of Education to sort mm -hmm. of an attempt to bring American school children up to certain standards. Um, and so it had you know good intentions, as most education policies presumably do. Um, Presumably. <laughs> yeah. The negative consequence of it, which is why it's not generally regarded as a great policy, is that what happened is, is it, this attempt at uh, mass standardization from a centralized point, which is the Federal Department of Education, uh, caused the institution of widespread standardized testing uh, at all levels of grade school curricula. and. Even though standardized testing is something that I'm generally in favor of at higher levels, like college entrance and uh, going into high school, you know, there are important factors that we can determine uh, through standardized testing, implementing it uh, developmentally at every single stage of one's educational career is a huge problem, uh, not least because of the fact that children develop at different rates. And so if you're expecting them all at the same age to be performing the same way, uh, then what you can have happening over time is you can have students who maybe would be uh, educationally um, adequate or sufficient, uh, you know, th throughout the average of their educational career, believing at, at various points that they're inadequate or they're stupid or they're doing not as well as their peers because of the fact that they're on a different developmental tra trajectory. Um, that is for the time being. Um, all this is, I mean, I, I don't care too much to go into the, the pros and cons of uh, No Child Left Behind. If you've got an opinion on it, go ahead. Uh, I, I, was just, I was just reminded last night when I was listening to that song that he had taken this term and he had done this with a number of other things um, and ripped it from its original context where it was this, you know, this particular educational program. And then he used it in this song uh, where it wasn't really about that at all. Um, and so you can play this game of sort of reassociating if you reappropriate terms. 
Okay, yeah, that's that's a very interesting, a very interesting point. Did you know that I forget the year it was made, but a kids' film? Remember those little trolls that you'd get in Happy Meals? Mm-hmm. You know how they made a kids' movie about which like brought the trolls to life and all of their wonderful world? Yeah, that was uh, well, a weird movie. <laughs> it was a weird movie, very uplifting, uh, and as in the kind of cool psychedelic way that children's movies are becoming in over the last decade, I've noticed anyway. Um, and, but anyway, in the Trolls movie, they have this bit where they're like, no troll left behind. And it's, you know, talking about like the community and the solidarity uh, between the trolls. So, uh, so that, that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> just as an aside, I think it, I'm glad that you uh, brought that up about the standardized testing because it brings into, um, into focus that, that idea of sameness versus equality. You know, did you ever see that picture of like, oh, like there are three people and they're all different heights and they're trying to look over a fence to see something happening and sameness comes along and says, oh, here, look, you can all have the same height block. And of course, it's no good for the shorter people. Um, But then equality comes along and it's like, look, you can have the block which is appropriate to your needs. Um, and, you know, something that we can see there is um, like there, there does tend to be this confusion, uh, doesn't there? Even even in 2012, this idea, the confusion of the ideas of sameness and equality, um, for example, the whole like empowering woman movement that we've seen over the last however many years, that whole like hashtag girl boss uh, really just seems to be, um, you know, giving women the chance to be as ruthless and horrible as uh you know people assigned masculine at birth have you know been forced into that role and it's like oh great now you can be traumatized in this you know in this masculine way as well and it's all just different shades of dysfunction and yet we're calling it equality so you know it's no wonder that we have such a that you know that communication has become so difficult and of course when communication becomes difficult it's hard for us to um cooperate um another point that i want to bring up uh in response to what you said is that idea of a testing and um we don't have to get into that right now actually maybe because you said you want to talk a bit about education uh we can talk about that talk about that then but i have stuff to say about that now okay okay (laughs) well so i want to back up a little bit because i think Mm -hmm. the listeners might uh feel a little bit lost in the weeds at the moment about what it is that we're exactly talking about. Um, okay. uh, I want to, uh, before we get super far into like education or testing, um, I want to kind of establish its relationship to these more general ideas that we started with. Um, mm-hmm. And so specifically this idea of um, Dimaxin, I think is tightly related to this. Uh, with, so uh, I'll give you some, some additional context. Uh, it's interesting to me that um, that uh, you and I started talking over Twitter, which is the the impetus for having this conversation in the first place a few days ago, because over the weekend I was reading uh, I was reading Hansi Freinach's The Listening Society, and The Listening Society is actually very closely uh, related in its uh, in its more generic goals to the purpose of the show. Um, although Hansi and I come from a very different perspective. Are you familiar with the Listening Society? No, please tell me. Oh, sure. So uh, Hansi Freinach, uh, I believe he's uh, German or Swiss, maybe. He lives in Switzerland. He's in the Swiss Alps. Uh, and he wrote this book called The Listening Society. And the basic premise 
in the listening society is that um, it, it's a uh, so it's it's hard to totally encapsulate, but it's a broad political theory, and it's a political theory that is basically making the argument that the way to uh, improve quality of life in developed industrialized post-industrial nations <clears throat> is to focus on these more um, subjective uh, qualities of experience that uh, that are plaguing our society, right? Um, so basically, if you're thinking about um, Dimaxin, if you're thinking about the uh, the places in which you can have maximum effect for the minimum amount of energy input in a place like the United States or in Western Europe, where you have these post-industrial societies with information economies and um, you know largely service-based economies, there aren't very many places left where um, you can really influence uh, change in a very dramatic way on the level of, let's say, improving people's economic conditions, right? So uh, you talked earlier about the effect of economic inequality, right? And it's deleterious effects on sort of the social fabric. And that's a well-known fact, right? But in some of the places, uh, specifically Hansi Freinach is looking at a lot of the Nordic countries and using them as an example in this book, The Listening Society, of the kind of places that we want to begin to emulate. Um, and in particular, he talks a lot about, uh, and this is why I think it's related to the work that you're doing. He talks a lot, a lot about uh, improvements in childcare, improvements uh, along individual developmental pathways, uh, doing things to uh, reduce uh, population level traumas, and, and especially also generally just having a more caring, compassionate, sort of sensitive approach to uh, how we structure society, everything down from the education level to parenting, to uh, how we set people up in their careers and support them through the welfare state later on. Now, Hansi specifically uh, is coming from, and I think this is partly the European versus American difference. He's a little bit more, um, I would say, to the left than I would be personally. But while I was reading this book, uh, I was finding a lot of uh, similarity between his ideas and the general project that this show is trying to move people towards, which is more geared towards sort of a psychological um, and almost spiritual, in some cases, phenomenological approach to uh, transforming society. Uh, and I believe that has a lot of uh, closeness to the project that you're working on. Um, and so this is all to uh, summarize for yourself and for the listeners why it is that we're focusing on children and education and childhood development is because when you reach a, a sufficient level of, let's say, economic security, and now not everybody has that in these places, but a large ma majority do, there aren't going to be improvements in people's quality of life and in the health and productivity and functioning of adults uh, that are going to be caused by them having more money, for example. And in fact, if they're dysfunctional, having more money might even exacerbate some of those problems because it'll allow them to act out in more extreme ways. Um, all that is to say that a lot of the vast improvements that could be made need to be made in this more proactive manner and also, according to Freinach and, and according to, to me as well, um, 
there needs to be more emphasis on kind of uh, the communal approach to fixing and also preventing some of these problems rather than putting everything as uh, Americans especially tend to do on the individual to figure it out for themselves. Um, and I know, I know there should be a question at the end of this. So, oh no, that's fine. That's fine. I've got stuff to say like in response as sure. inspired by the things you said, unless you want to pose well, me a direct question. So. I'll just say all that is to frame the problem, but you can go ahead and respond if you'd like. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, I, so I appreciate this idea of taking things back to basics. Now, obviously, if you can design out a problem, or you know, then you you can design um, you can design activity and infrastructure in such a way that the problem gets sort of phased out, becomes obsolete. And uh, when we look at um, so this, this is a word I'm not sure if I've made up or not, but when I use it, uh, so it's the word machinification. And mm. when I say machinification, I'm talking about, you know, referring to any kind of concept in a sort of computery, technical, almost algebraicified, I don't know if that's a word either, but, you know, like in, as, as though things were a machine mm -hmm. to kind of highlight the, the, the structure, the, the structural element of that. So uh, if we look at the community and we look at uh, childcare within the community, the child care institution, um, you know, which, you know, for, from, you know, er, as early childcare to, you know, right the way through to adolescence is very much the regulatory subsystem of the system of the community, because whatever we put into the regulatory subsystem of childcare becomes what eventually the community is. And so it's this, um, this cool little, little flow, feedback right? Feedback loop. That's right. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, and that, is um, I, I took a note about what you were saying here. Ah, yeah, okay. So that feeds into this idea of sort of like taking things back to basics and stopping the problems before they start. Um, and compassion is and compassion and the reduction of trauma and healing. You know, that's that's kind of why we're here, isn't it? It's to heal so that we can come together and ascend the overall vibration and vibrational frequency of our activity uh, to a point where it is extremely functional and people are suffering a lot less. Um, and this really goes hand in hand because with um with the economic element as well, because of course, while we are reducing trauma and uh, and uplifting public health and uh, public health and uplifting the general vibe, the zeitgeist, <laughs> okay, um, in that type of way, we must be building on that from a from a solid foundation. Um, you're familiar with how money comes into print, right? Sure. But maybe your viewers aren't or your listeners aren't. So, you know, that that whole idea of, you know, the banks will print money will create create money, generate money and they'll loan it to governments at interest. Right. So then in that government, you know, distributes that money. However, so things are circulating. But at the end, because the money's been loaned at interest, more money needs to be returned to the banks than what actually exists. So right away, we have the infestation of debt 
boom, whammo, straight into the community, right? And when we're dealing with like large sums of money, it's easy to kind of lose sight of this truth as money circulates and is spent. But then of course, as the money is exchanged, um, you know, in return for service, commodities, whatever, like in the process of industry, of course, the debt separates from the money and the money will be sort of funneled up to the, you know, the, the institutions, uh, the businesses, the business owners, et cetera, et cetera. And whereas who gets saddled with the debt? The poor people, right? And then at some point, someone has to default on their loans. It's going to be a poor person. Everybody goes, oh, you should have pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, which, by the way, is a phrase which originated uh, as an expression to refer to something which was impossible, ironically enough. Um, and then, you know, we have this culture of inequality, which greatly undermines... Um, really trying not to say public health here, which greatly undermines the happy, happy, good times and the the uh, the community as a whole, really, in its ultimate expression of self. And it is like, so, you know, then if we were to kind of look at just um, being as kind as we possibly could to our kids without addressing one of the worst things that we as a culture are um, are enforcing on our kids, which is economic inequality, um, I think that that would not be a very stable vehicle for improvement. Um, because you see, the discourse of childcare cannot and indeed must not be removed from the discourse of economics. Uh, and the same is true vice versa. A child who, you know, even if they go to the best creche, and, and you know, we can talk about like the shape that education might take post-scarcity, which I think would frame this, what I'm saying right now quite well. But even, you know, things being as they are, if a child is going to the best creche, which is an Irish term for uh, preschool, if they're going to the best preschool and they have all of their lovely organic meals, but their parents are, you know, uh, stressed out from having to work their nine to five and their neighbors, you know, can't go to a really nice preschool. They're going to a crappy preschool because they're poor. And basically they're having to witness the effects of income inequality and the destabilizing really awful effects that that has on community satisfaction and the neighborhood in general, all the mistrust, antisocial behavior, income inequality is linked to teen pregnancies, et cetera. Um, you know, that is still going to be a, a real scar on the child's psyche, which is why, you know, these two ideas of, um, uh, of, of child care and of uh, economic equality are really uh, interlinked. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if you've read the Bitcoin standard, uh, which is sort of like the, the main book for a lot of the Bitcoin evangelists. But the Bitcoin yeah. standard actually, oddly enough, uh, deals with this argument, I'd say in like a very extreme form, where they make the case that the printing of money and the devaluation of currency is itself a kind of um, toxification of our economic system that leads to all these downward negative effects um, in society more broadly. Um, and so a, a huge aspect of keeping the social fabric intact is actually people having trust uh, in the system itself, and in particular in the soundness of the monetary system. And so when you devalue, when you devalue the currency, what you're doing is you're, um, you're sowing distrust in, within the society. You're also creating all kinds of perverse incentives. And of course, you're stealing from the taxpayers, um, essentially, uh, and giving mm -hmm. it to various kinds of uh, institutions and people within those institutions who are well-positioned to sort of receive that money on the front end. 
mm-hmm. rather than later on when it when it comes down to them. Well, um, absolutely. And then what do sorry now I'm interrupting you. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, no. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying say your piece because I was going to move on to the next topic. Oh, okay, cool. Well, I was going to say, you know, and then what do those institutions and business owners do? They turn around, they buy up prisons, they put the community people, the community people, they <laughs> they put the members of the community in the prisons. They decide what they build on the land that we have to live in. They architecture the maze that we have to run through. Um, and so, yeah, it's, you know, they're, they're really, it's like the opposite of emancipation. It's demancipation. It's oppression. Um, an interesting point, you know, you're, you're talking about how we need to have trust in the monetary system. And of course, you know, something like Bitcoin being decentralized, however much energy, you know, it takes to mine Bitcoin, which I'm personally, I don't know exactly how much it is, but I think it's a lot. But um with regard to that whole Bitcoin thing, like as great as it is that it's decentralized, any community in which we are competing for resource access uh, through currency or directly, um, as opposed to, you know, I think the thing that I talked about at the beginning of, um, of our little chat, you know, where we're just dealing directly with the resources. We're like, okay, look, this is our community obviously we want everyone to be healthy because we don't want our kids to be traumatized because we love our kids and we want our community to continue well, right? Um, So let's just figure out what's going to go where. We've got all the data here. Everything is streamlined. Everything is um, understandable. Most stuff is automated. So we don't have to be in that position of uh, competing to sell our labor for any type of currency or any type of access. And, you know, and the few things which aren't automated, you know, I'm sure... I personally would be very happy to volunteer to be that person who every second Tuesday of the month goes up and tunes up the machine if that meant that, you know, we could live in a, a state of relative abundance. Uh, so I think, you know, as as great as Bitcoin is and as wonderful as blockchain is, and I think as very useful as blockchain um, has the potential to be in such an economic s- setting as the one that I just described, I think any situation in which we have currency and we're co- outside of like casinos and games and stuff like that, um, where we're kind of like in that way gamifying a comp- a competitive element and trying to put that in between people and what they need, especially when it's completely unnecessary given the tools at our disposal. Um, I think that that throws a spanner in the works and it is a uh, very, very problematic because it doesn't address then the issue of systemic inequality, which is the sort of underpinning issue Um which then, you know, very much stands to undermine the integrity of any community. Well, so then my question for you then would be, well, it's not obvious to me that we're at the stage of post-scarcity as you're describing it right now, right? So there are scarce resources. And in fact, due to natural, like the, the I mean, even outside of competition for like status or, um, you know, uh, you know, who you would like to uh, be life partners with, you know, mates and things like that, which is also inherently scarce, right? Um, there is this other issue of natural resources themselves being scarce, which are needed for particular purposes, um, or even something as basic as, you know, where you live, right? Real estate is scarce because there can only be one, you know, building or one house, you know, on this particular plot of land. And if I own this particular plot of land, and this is where I stay and this is where uh, my family dwells. Well, that means that someone else's family it can't be there. Um, and so there are um, 
classes of things, which despite all of our, um, all of our transition to an information economy and despite any amount of innovation in space of automation uh, that takes place are going to be scarce no matter what. Um, and so this is actually a, a good place of, of disagreement for us because uh, I, I don't see that we're anywhere close to what you're describing. Um, but I would be wonderfully interested in knowing uh, what, what you see as sort of some of the pathways that we might move that way. Oh, awesome. Uh, that's a great question, too. Um, so you're talking about sort of a natural competition, you know, like competition for like sexual selection or se sexual selection, like the Snoop Dogg, so Snoop Dogg song. <laughs> Damn, I can't talk today. Um, yeah, sexual selection or, you know, like where are we going to build what, et cetera, et cetera. That's kind of a you know, these are issues that any community is going to face, right? Even like, you know, if we imagine like the ultimate um, post-scarcity community where everybody's all blissed out and happy and enjoying themselves and painting pictures and frolicking in the fields with their children, etc., you're still going to have an element of competition, right? And I think that that's just something that uh, everybody's just kind of got to deal with, right? And and I think the important thing is to be able to be dynamic when it comes to that. Um, I envision, for example, something to deal with that is if you had uh, an app on your phone. And, you know, and again, we have a situation now where all of the regional data is being collected, which is the situation that we have right now, right? Almost all data on all things is being collected. But except for where is that going? Is that then being open? open access to the members of the community? No. Is it getting hoarded so, and then sold off to different uh, agencies and companies so they can better learn how to market to us? Yes. The latter is very problematic. However, a good thing about that is that the kind of the infrastructure is there. It just needs to be redistributed. And, um, and you know, and then we have an interesting uh, conundrum of privacy where, you know, actually this this uh, reality that we share has been post-privacy for a very long time. But what it has not been is post-privatization and post-privatized uh, data. So we have, we're operating under this illusion of privacy where we can hide from, um, we can hide some of our personal information from Jeannie next door, but the NSA, they know us better than our own mom, right? Um, but with that infrastructure already in place of data that being collected and with then the, you know, the a move towards post-scarcity to have that data being redistributed so that it's open access. First of all, it, it does it does two things, probably does more than two things, but there are two things that it does that I want to talk about. So one is that it really strongly puts the impetus on the community to come together and protect uh, protect each other. Because obviously, if all data is because um, it's already being logged. So now the question is what to do with it. Do we continue letting uh, certain cooperations hoard it or do we let it, let it be free, let it fly free? And um, if we do the latter, which, uh, you know, we're at that crossroads now where we have to choose, then, you know, it does raise questions of like, what about the perverts who want to track your kids route to school, etc. And what it brings into question then is this idea of the attachment village, a term coined, I believe, by Gordon Neufeld, who's a, a very good psychologist. This idea where um, a child's um, the, the, 
people within a child's community, the people with whom a child are bonded to, are also bonded to each other. And in that way, they are communicating with each other. Like, uh, oh, I just saw so-and-so leave school. So, you know, you can expect him home an X amount of time. And on the way home, he says hi to his neighbor and the neighbor is like, okay, watching out for you. I've got your back, that kind of thing. And obviously this, um, this atmosphere of cooperation um, greatly reduces the, um, the splintering effect that uh, growing up tends to have on children in this, um, in this modern age, uh, wherein there's the advent of peer orientation. Um, can I woman-splain peer orientation to you real quick? Go, go ahead, keep going. Okay, so peer orientation is when the bond, because you see children, they, um, they mold their behavior around the behavior or like, you know, sort of they copy, they emulate the behavior of the person with whom their bond of attachment is the strongest. Now in children who have been in preschool since they were six months old, being dropped off at six in the morning and picked up at seven in the evening, very soon their primary bond of attachment becomes with their peers because you know then the large groups of children and the you know the children to adult ratio it's very unlikely that that child is going to be able to form a very strong bond um a very strong kind of like unique with that kind of idea of like i cherish your heart with the caregiver in question who is in the preschool although a lot of caregivers can do very very well you know i've seen that firsthand um there's, there's just at the moment, there's not, especially here in Ireland, which is where my experience is of childcare, there's not an adequate um, adult to child ratio. And so what these children end up doing, you know, they're, they want to give you their heart, they want to be loved, they want to be accepted and validated, and they start trying to give their heart to their peers. And, you know, and a little five or four-year-old is just as likely to say, I love you as I hate you. You're not my friend. I don't like your shoes. And then, you know, they'll forget about it the next day. But the hurt really cuts deep um, for these children. And so, you know, that is a source of trauma. But even without that, we have the situation where these peers forming these um you know, the, these groups of young people forming these very strong bonds of each other, these kind of self-referential bonds where they start copying each other's behavior, uh, keeps them in this loop, uh, in this feedback loop of immature behavior and kind of uh, breaks off the, you know, the traditionally vertical transmission of culture and makes culture then be a phenomenon which happens kind of in these isolated generational pockets uh, between the youths and the youths and the companies which then market to them, making them very easy prey to be um, manipulated. Um, which is not to say that there are values that our ancestors had that uh, don't need to just be uh, forgotten, <laughs> but um, but preferably not forgotten, you know, preferably learned from, understood, and then perhaps built upon or transcended. Um, and, cert and certainly not, you know, imposed by uh, by distant corporations. No, absolutely. And then what was the other thing you were saying about, um, do, 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 I forget, I had another point, but I forgot what it was. I wanted to talk about plots of land. Did I already do that when you were talking about um, competition and stuff like that? Um, I mean, you briefly Is that addressed a few points ago. Uh, yeah, natural competition and 
this sort of, you know, inherent scarcity to certain kinds of resources and access. Mm. Something that could really help with that, you know, would be if we, you know, let's say, let's say this open access, open source, reduced waste, resource-based economy was, um, you know, it was available on an online platform, which anybody can access at any time, right? So, you know, you can have like things like maps of the region in question that you live in with um, all of like, you know, these little different points. This resource was sourced from here. Here is your local tool library and the tools came from here, here, and here. This tool library is also a makerspace and the energy used to power that and the types of tool use tools used here are this, that, and this. Um, you know, are we happy with this as a community? Do we want to have a meeting to discuss this? Blah, blah, blah. And then you could potentially have something like on your phone, you know, where you hold up your phone to this great big plot of land that you want to build on. You hold it up, you scan that plot of land, scan it into your Global Redesign Institute, Dimax, and whatever the heck it's going to be called, app. And um, and you see, well, who else is interested in building on this plot of land now? Deep, 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 three neighbors are also interested. So then what do you do? You go with them, you meet up, you converse, and you figure it out. And I think, you know, in this, you know, we've, we've become so, uh, what's the word? Um, dependent in a sense, not everybody, obviously, but generally there's the sense of we need the government to tell us what to do. We need the boss to tell us what to do. And before that, we need the teacher to tell us what to do. Um, which is actually very counter to having a creative experience of um, learning. <clears throat> but that's, uh, you know, go, we can circle back to that, as you Americans say. Um, but because we get so dependent on this idea of being told what to do, the idea of just like, oh, well, you know, we all want to build on this plot of land, so we'll meet up and figure it out. Let the chips fall where they may. Maybe you don't end up getting to build on that plot of land because your other neighbor has a more compelling reason to do so. Um, maybe you end up building some sort of community thing. But it's that idea of not to be afraid of confrontation, not to be afraid of a little bit of community disagreement, because the important thing is that there is uh, equality of expression and um, and that things are getting to where they need to go in terms of like, you know, the reduction of poverty and, uh, and you know, the issue of resource access, et cetera. And then, you know, and everything else from that, we need to have a little bit of confidence. I certainly have the confidence that with people's basic needs met, cooperation will become a little bit more easy. You might, you might get two people fist fighting over that plot of land, you know, but it's not like we need to, and this is, you know, this is an issue that I think some... Uh, people who identify uh, with that idea of futurism face, you know, we don't need to design everything to a T. Oh, what's going to happen when people disagree? Well, here's my five point plan of how we're going to manage conflict. And, you know, and there's this, that and the other. And oh, there's going to be a reconditioning center for anyone who's anti like, no, like, just like chill out, lay the foundation for what needs to happen. It's very clear, just get things going where they need to have a equality oriented resource economy that's optimized towards nonviolence, equality, repeating myself. And then from there, let the people in those communities figure stuff out for themselves because people aren't stupid. You know, people are disenfranchised, people are traumatized, people are locked into survival mode. But, you know, it, it's a community issue. So that should be up to the communities, I think. Mm. Well, I'm gonna have to think about that a little bit longer. Um, okay. because that, you know, then you're getting into issues of like governance and, you know, private property and how exactly mm -hmm. all of that gets sorted out. And, uh, you know, there are lots of experiments that go on with that, but, um, 
there are also, I would say, evolved systems, naturally evolved systems for managing some of those things. One example of that would be like the tort system, for example, um, which is, you know, the, the, the system of English common law was developed in a very naturalistic way and um, sort of had a, a kind of natural evolution uh, to it. And, uh, and so that's actually a good example of a not top-down thing, of a sort of bottom-up process, uh, a historical process, um, and one that's you know, grounded in a particular um, legal tradition, but still. Um, what I wanted to return to, and, and we've been kind of, um, we've, we've, we've been weaving in and out of it, but I really wanted to put some emphasis on this point. I wanted to return to uh, something you said earlier, which is the um, child development and child care as a subsystem for mm. regulating the society, which you've already talked about in your last point here, um, mm -hmm. which is that uh, if you have good systems in place for developing independent, creative, cooperative adults, then the outflows in terms of benefits to the functioning of your society later on are tremendous, right? Mm. Because you now have happier, healthier, more productive adults who then go on to do more interesting things, more creative things with their lives. And there's less conflict also as a result of that. Um, and so I wanted to zoom in then on, um, on a term that you use a lot in your work and that I think you've already mentioned uh, at least once or twice in this conversation, which is attachment systems. Mm -hmm. So how does your understanding of attachment, uh, which you, you talked about a little bit in the example you gave of, uh, of peer to peer, uh, you know, association or learning. Uh, how does that influence your understanding of this sort of project? Um, because I think it's something that's crucial when we're thinking about the full expression of, you know, of grown adults, when we're thinking about ways to reduce trauma in particular, um, and especially when you consider the fact that a lot of the economic conditions that we're under are causing uh, more unconventional family styles, more, uh, you know, again, uh, as you alluded to earlier, just children being separated from their primary caregivers or uh, not giving not being given adequate attention because of the fact that they're put through these systems and also because of the demands that are made upon families. Um, you know, what, how, I just want to delve deeper into this particular point here of attachment and the way that it interacts with all these things that we've been talking about. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's very, very interesting because attachment uh, is uh, kind of the through line of all of this, isn't it? Uh, attachment is what attaches all of the different concepts together. Um, so maybe I can answer you by kind of painting you a little narrative. I feel like that's the best way that I could kind of address those, you know, those, uh, those different concepts, but along the through line of, um, of attachment. So imagine then that we have a, um, we have that that resource based so with the focus being on the organization allocation production distribution and uh, manufacturing i think i already said manufacturing and recycling of resources that's the focus right a resource-based reduced rate 
reduced waste, meaning that, you know, perhaps the products are designed with the end in mind that once they have, you know, they finish doing what they need to do, the parts are then sent back to the, you know, the manufacturing hub or whatever it is. Um, So in that way, we're greatly reducing waste. Also, you know, things being made, you know, like with mycelium and stuff, which is uh, not plastic, (laughs) you know, uh, and not radioactive either. So if we have a um, a resource-based, reduced waste, open source. And then, you know, there we can think a little bit about blockchain, the idea that every time a community member contributes uh, to the building of this economy, which should very much continue to be like an emergent organic thing. And in that way, you know, be the best kind of dynamic support system for a culture, which is also emergent and dynamic and growing. Um so, and, you know, and with blockchain, if, if people are kind of contributing to that and helping things grow, then we can always like kind of like cut back and say, oh, well, you know, where did this idea come in and how has it been influenced since then? So open source, so uh, resource-based, reduced waste, open source, open access, which we've talked about already, all the regional data being made available for the people who live in the region so that they can give their informed consent as to policy, et cetera. So. If we have a a resource-based, reduced waste, open access, and open source cybernetic economy, um, and cybernetic is just basically, I mean, like, you know, it's all of that, all of that stuff. It's a made-up word. Um, But then again, all words are made up, and now I'm confusing myself. If we have that kind of economy anyway, uh, so let's imagine that we've got a a good state of, um, I'm just going to go ahead and say, okay, of public health, but of public health in the sense that it is like, it's real, it's genuine. People of the public are feeling satisfied with the level of health that their community uh, supports them to have. Um, then you can imagine that, for example, a um, the school system, because you know now, let's say um, so many um, so many things which keep the economy going, so many aspects of household management are automated. Um, we then don't have a situ- automated, but still with like a but like automated. So like human labor doesn't need to be involved, but automated and made to be open access and open source, so that human inspiration is very much involved. Uh, and I mean, if you've ever seen a painting that was painted by somebody who was stressed out about not you know not meeting their deadline and not getting to feed their kid, and a painting that was painted by somebody who felt beautifully inspired and motivated out of love, you can get you can get the idea of the sort of the different types of communities that we're talking about here one that relies on human labor human fear-based labor and human inspiration uh so because parents now are largely free of that daily grind there's not really any need to keep um the school as like a little unit where the children are kind of left and uh taught at which you know we can touch because I've been kind of like um, tiptoeing around that idea but that has more to do with like we can go back to that anyway so there's no real need to kind of relegate or uh, push the whole education system into like a little building and have that be where children are raised to be productive members of the labor force instead what we want to do in this um, inspiration cooperation driven community is to open up the school so that the school becomes the community and in that way open up the community so it is inviting to the young people so you could maybe have in your local tool library there's a maker space where children can go and 
make stuff and learn about how stuff is made in their community. The local horticultural hub has got community gardens where children can go and, you know, speak with the different people who live in the garden. There's going to be plenty of activities there waiting to engage them. You have, you can have like centers of science, centers of art, basically whatever you can imagine being part of a, of a healthy, uh, of a healthy community. Um, should then should then be welcoming and opening for children and young people to step into that and in that way step into their step into their community and start to learn how to step into their power as an active um active neighbor in the neighborhood and this is what you know this is where we come into attachment where the attachment bonds instead of being like fragmented in the state of uh of systemically manufactured competition as enforced by having any kind of monetary system at all. Um, and, and then, you know, and everything arising from there, we have the children are sectioned off over here. The parents are sectioned off over here. The, you know, the aunts and uncles are sectioned off over here. Everything is all kind of like disparate. We have this, this attachment village. And at this point we can have um, a greater level of, community satisfaction and then what have i put over here yeah well and then here we we can come back to this thing that i've been wanting to bring up for a minute which is this idea of learning versus teaching when children are in school and they are being taught a lot of the time um there's this situation in which they are not like they're being taught stuff sure and that's great but this lesson these lessons um in science and maths and art and music are all kind of coming hand in hand with this um this idea of of submitting to authority and as i think it was doris lessing who said the perfect at the moment i think okay i don't remember the quote hundred percent but she basically said something like what should be said to every school-aged child and repeated often so that they don't forget is that at the moment we do not have a system of education which is not also a system of indoctrination and this is to be expected when we need young people to grow up and become part of the labor force um, however if we want young people to grow up and become part of the inspiration force it would make so much more sense then to have a situation in which they are, like I said, invited into the community. You'd still have like gym halls and like special labs, which were prepared to, you know, uphold the health and safety regulation standards for them to like, you know, mess around with Bunsen burners and stuff like that. Um, but can you imagine like a city or like a community, a neighborhood, which is basically transformed into a university campus, but for kids of all ages. And in that way, the family, like the organic pace of the family is upheld because I mean, as a mom, there have been so many times when like my kid is having an emotional breakdown over not being able to have like an extra whatever with her breakfast. Um, Okay, she doesn't actually have emotional breakdowns. Okay, full disclosure, I'm not an awful parent. But, you know, like something is happening. She needs something to be dealt with. And I have to choose between, well, you have to get out the door. Otherwise, you're going to be late for school. Or being like, okay, sweetheart, let's talk about it. What is your unmet need right now? So in a situation in which, you know, the, the school kind of opened up and and kind of like the seeds of education and inspiration instead of all kind of being crammed into this one plot of an educational system 
institution, they're scattered across the community. And then that way they're informing the development of the community as well and reminding everyone in the community about how much we need to orient our community to the support of the emerging future community, which is our children. Um, and in that kind of situation, you know, a kid, say an eight-year-old kid, could be like, okay, tomorrow I want to have a bit of a chill morning just hanging out, playing with my dolls. But then in the afternoon, I want to have a, you know, I want to have a piano lesson over here. I want to go and like spend some time in the community garden afterwards. Then I want to go and do some science experiments at the science hall afterwards, whatever it might be. And, uh, and you can like be booking into slots, et cetera, as parents and as families. And, uh, and in that way, you know, like families are meeting each other. Maybe the parents want to come along. Maybe they don't. But there's just this uh, a greater, a much greater opportunity, I think, for, for inspiration, for communication, uh, cooperation, and, you know, all of this in this enhanced attachment, voluntary attachment, where you're going places where you want to be and you're seeing and you're learning things that you want to learn about. And um, instead of just kind of, you know, being just put wherever a system that wasn't designed for you or your community is forcing you to be. Yeah, well, that's very interesting. I have an interview that I did with um, uh, British philosopher Nina Power, which will actually be out. It hasn't been released yet, but it will be out before this episode airs uh, for those who are listening to this in the future. Uh, in which we talk about Ivan Illich, who uh, is uh, one of his more famous works is Deschooling Society, which is uh, a term that he uses for that's very similar to this concept that you're talking about, which is sort of uh, for Ivan Illich was at least uh, deinstitutionalizing education and really breaking away from this sort of centralized model mm. um, and imagining alternative forms of education that might take place, which there are many natural experiments going on uh, with that right now because due to COVID, many people have decided to uh, pull their children out of the public schools, which are dysfunctional, and try alternative, you know, uh, learning strategies, whether that's homeschooling or learning pods or, you know, private tutoring, if they can afford that. Um, there are all sorts of interesting things happening in that space. Um, one of the things I wanted to bring up with regard to attachment, though, was I think there's something more fundamental here than just simply the quantity and the quality. I mean, the quality of the relationships is really what you're talking about, but more fundamental than the quality, or sorry, the quantity of relationships or the way in which they're supported throughout the community, uh, which is sort of the psychological angle to it. Um, and, and that is to say that in developmental psychology, when we think about uh, attachment patterns in children, what we're actually talking about is the way in which the child relates themselves to the outside world, broadly speaking. Um, there's always an object of attachment, even in the case of the caregiver scenario. Um, the way that that's sort of conceptualized is a subject-object relationship. Um, now, of course, a mature attachment style recognizes that there's, you know, that it's not an object that you actually, what you've encountered is a secondary subject. Um, that being said, uh, when we're talking about things like cooperation or fear response uh, or um, even just uh, the basic access, I'm sorry, not access, axis of, uh, mm -hmm. of exploration versus, um, let's say, uh, 
a non-exploratory or a fear-based mentality. Um, all of that is built into sort of the attachment styles that a child develops usually very, very early on, like within the first seven years of life. Mm -hmm. And uh, if something goes wrong during those stages, it can become very difficult to then pull them out of that, uh, even if they get proper support uh, later on, because of how deeply that's ingrained in their conception of self and their conception of others. Um, and so this is one of those key areas that can really be a massive um, point of improvement uh, in preventing those kinds of things from happening. Because when you look at, say, things like aggression, or you look at uncooperative behavior, um, all these things that we sort of view as antisocial, a lot of those are grounded in a sort of dysfunctional attachment style, which gets developed, unfortunately, very early on when there's very minimal control uh, by the child themselves over, over how these things uh, play out. Mm. Um, so I wanted to then uh, ask you, like, do you imagine uh, things like psychological services or uh, kinds of widespread interventions uh, on the level of not only uh, not only you know traditional psychotherapy methods, but also things like uh, like physical engagement, like getting people and in particular children again more um, more physically embodied, uh, and different kinds of alternative methods, things like uh, meditation, for example. Um, would, would these be all sort of involved in the kind of planning or the formation of this educational curriculum that you are imagining would go along with this sort of rearrangement of society? Oh, cool. Um, well, you know, when I imagine the rearrangement of society, I kind of stop at imagining, at trying to set a good foundation for then society to go forth and do its own thing. Um, and within that, I've got all sorts of my own ideas about like what the optimum thing would be. But I think it's very important. Um, well, I, for, I, I want to make it very, very clear that with the Global Redesign Institute, what that means for me and Dimaxon, my idea, like what I'm trying to do is just to give humanity um, a, a good jumping off point to then figure stuff out for themselves well, for itself, for people to figure stuff out for themselves. Um, and uh, and then sort of let the chips fall where they may, because I think the end is pre-existent in the means. And if you want to have, that's a Martin Luther King quote, if you want to have a situation, a future in which there is a high degree of liberty, it needs to arise. Uh, it needs to arise as freely as possible. So that's just my little disclaimer. Okay, now, um, but what was the word that you said? It wasn't a, a syllabus, but you used a similar kind of word. Just there, like, not a syllabus uh, that you're like a, a curriculum. Oh, okay. Right. Um, I don't know if that's a similar word, but I associate the two. Um, so, yeah. Um, and you were saying, about, I think absolutely. Yeah. Like a meditation, yoga and a connection with nature should all be, you know, very, uh, should all factor in very greatly in, um, in a child's development. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. And, you know, the degree to which that needs to happen would be specific to each and every child, but certainly, you know, 
I, it's my personal dream to open up um, to open up a school one day. I'm a couple of qualifications away from doing that, but I'm on my way to having all of those qualifications to then not be able to do it because I can't afford it. <clears throat> no, sorry, that's negative self-talk. The dream is there. And the dream is that I, you know, I'd open up my own school and it would be like half just like regular school, right? So like, you know, just like a creche. Uh, sorry, like a preschool, it would probably be a preschool. And then you'd have, um, but it'd also be a rescue farm and like lessons would be outdoors as much as possible. You'd have like, you know, like lesson time allocated to just freestyling out in the nature, getting your hands dirty, seeing what you wanted to come up with, but always with um a uh, you know general kind of support from the facilitators it wouldn't just because you know children there's some I can't reference the study now but there have been studies done in which it showed that children when becoming bored they revert to sadistic aggression um so I know I'm not talking about just all like sending the kids out into a field and be like, see you later, kids, enjoy being free. Um, because I think that can be very problematic, not least because of that idea of peer orientation. In order to develop secure um, and functional attachment styles, one of the a very important thing which is needed for that is um, is guidance. You know, so whereas when it comes to learning how to paint a picture or uh, learning how to, um, I don't know, how to write or even developing a relationship with maths and numbers, it's very, it's, you know, in science, it's very important to kind of, um, you know, like allow the child to make that discovery process there so they can have all of that positive creative association with it. And then in that way, really do justice to the genius that we're all imbued with as children, that willingness to try doing things differently. I haven't met a single child in, you know, my whole experience of working with children. I've never met a single child who was not in some way a creative genius. Um, just by virtue of wanting to experiment and do things a little bit differently and getting all weird and silly with it, right? Um, but when it comes to the development of attachment style, how we communicate with each other, it's very important that there is a... a uh, like a wise, empathetic, uh, non-violent in the sense of like force of truth. Obviously, it goes without saying we don't want to be hitting our kids. But more than that, you know, we want to be coming at them with respect. We want to be tailoring our communication specifically to meet the needs of the individual in question so that they feel seen and understood and listened to and appreciated. And we as caregivers want to be showcasing all of these different ways of interacting respectfully and of being uh, being functionally um, and supporting functional attachment uh, so that then the children can, uh, you know, first of all, form a bond with us because we're so nice and they like us so much. And then also, um, like, uh, what's the word, which isn't assimilate and isn't copy, emulate, um, emulate our behaviors. Um, because children who have, uh, you know, kind of been left to their own devices amongst their peers a little bit too much and become peer oriented are more likely I can't reference the study, but there is one. And I think you can find it if you go to, I think, Gordon, the psychologist Gordon Neufeld's website, or maybe even Dr. Gabor Mate has done some stuff about this as well. Uh, children who are um, who have, are more peer oriented are much more likely to than in, you know, in later life, adolescence and in adulthood, seek out primarily more primitive forms of attachment. So they're going to be trying to attach to the people they care about. Um, 
you know, sexually and through validation. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but they're going to be doing that more than trying to form an intellectual um, and emotional bond with that person. Um, because again, they're kind of locked in that immature feedback loop, right? And um, so, yeah, so so definitely um, having, a, having a type of community in which um, education is kind of facilitated academic education is like facilitated creative uh, creative education is like an exploratory exploratory process with the support with the attentive but also respectful support of um of adults and where emotional development and you know attachment styles is something that children are are guided through um would greatly reduce i feel it's pretty fair to say would greatly reduce uh, the likelihood of dysfunctional attachment styles in uh, in later life. Well, that was a great summary. Um, so I wanted to uh, add in a, a disclaimer, which is weird. I don't feel like I should have to add in a disclaimer, but I feel like I might just because this episode is so unusual as compared to the normal episodes that we're usually doing. Um, which is that we don't on the show tend to talk a lot about uh, children and childhood and issues surrounding development. Um, and that's just sort of the, the nature of the show. You know, it's a political philosophy show. So we end up talking about a lot of adult, um, adult concerns and adult topics. But for those of you who are still listening, and if you're listening this far into it, I assume you think this is worthwhile. Um, I just want to make it clear that the reason why we're putting so much emphasis on this is because this is an area where you can get vast improvements with a small amount of investment uh, relative to the amount of uh, at least money that you need to spend. Uh, now, you do need to spend other things. You need to spend things like care and attention, um, which, uh, again, we've talked about the many ways in which society and our economic system might be redesigned to uh, allocate more of those things um, more effectively. Uh, but that is kind of the, the, the goal of what we're doing. And it ties into some of the other projects that we've featured on the show, things like Game B, which is, uh, has a very, very similar vein to this. I don't know if you're familiar with Game B. Um, yeah. But yeah, the Game B people are, are also trying to sort of establish kind of at the local, localist levels and community levels uh, rearrangements for uh, a multitude of systems and really trying to uh, imagine society in a holistic sense. And that's really like the through line I see through all these things we've been talking about, your work with the Global Redesign Institute, uh, even the Listening Society that I mentioned earlier, as well as Game B. All of these are holistic approaches to understanding how humans could be living, right? And none of them have yet, uh, you know, implemented a 100% concrete working functional instantiation of these ideas that we're talking about but the important thing is that we're having these conversations about these ideas and we're getting to the point where there's enough critical mass of people who are interested in them that we're approaching uh the level at which we can start to conduct small scale experiments uh to try to see if some of these uh will be able to flesh out so i wanted to ask you then anna you have a gofundme that's uh, you've set up for the Global Redesign Institute. Yeah. And it describes its purpose is raising money for this game. And mm -hmm. so I wanted to then ask you, 
what's going on with this game? Like, why did you decide that a game was important to be implemented? I know that you have some grant funding, but you're also, of course, doing some crowdfunding for it as well. Um, what What is it that made you and uh, your partner with the Global Redesign Institute, Casper, decide to uh, to try to carry this project forward in the form of a game? Um, okay, so I had thought that I had um, that I'd shut down the GoFundMe page, but I guess it's still there. Um, oh, I no. oh no. <laughs> I, I, no that's totally fine if anybody watching this right now is like oh hey i want to dump a bunch of cold hard cash into go go right ahead but i thought i'd shut it down because my idea was to um just try and exclusively apply for grants hmm. um mm. well so the global redesign institute no but i still want to do the game i just thought i'd try and ex apply exclusively for grants to do it because the gofundme wasn't getting any traction and then i had some of my low-income neighbors be like oh hey i'll put in a tenor and i was like you need that tenor for your food and basically at no point did some big oliver warbucks come along and say hey this sounds like exactly the kind of thing that doesn't undermine the way i've lived my life so here have my fortune um which, you know, was a long shot, but you never know. The reason why, <laughs> the reason why um, I thought that the Global Redesign Institute, Dimaxon, could have, um, could have a game or could start off as a game would be um, to have uh, a platform wherefore, or a traverso, how do we say a traverso in English, through which, a platform through which communities could uh, begin to kind of train themselves up in preparation for having, um, you know, their economic management returned to them. Um, so the idea is basically it would be a simulation game of the real thing in which you have a little map of your region and you can go through your region and tune things up and see what needs to be done. So you might hover over your uh, local florist. And um, I mean, I thought it'd be kind of cool to have a companion app as well. So like you could then physically go out to your local florist and hold up your phone um but maybe like pokemon go for flowers yeah basically and you hold up your but yeah you hold up your phone and you kind of like uh you know you you get your your florists or maybe just if we're having it in game it'll be a simulation of you doing this and then you know uh, as things develop that can be something that we bring into real life but so you look at your florist and then you pass them through the filters of um of uh functional criteria so you know like you know how on snapchat you have like a cute dog face filter but you also have like a flower princess filter i don't personally have snapchat but i hear that's what's going on for the snapchat right mm. um so then you would have like a sustainability a sustainability filter a regenerativity filter um oh gosh i don't know uh things being locally sourced filter um and you could pass your, um, you could pass whatever institution it is that you're looking at through all of these filters and see what comes out the other side. Now, this is something that I really like, right? Even if the thing, um, first of all, you can choose which filters you pass it through. You can be like, ah, regenerativity, regenerativity filter, screw that. We'll just stick with sustainability, right? And um, 
uh, or you could pass it through all the filters. And if you don't like what comes out the other side in game, you can just say, screw it, I'm going to freestyle. While you're in the game in game and you're looking at, oh, where am I going to build, et cetera, et cetera, um, you're going to have like a little guy like Clippy, remember from Microsoft Word, hey, it looks like you're trying to build a center for disease control. Do you want help? And if you say yes, it can be like, okay, well, these are the materials which are locally available. These are the materials which are most structurally sound. These are the different types of ways that you could build the building in order for it to be most environmentally resistant, sustainable, et cetera, whatever, right? And you can be like, okay, thanks. I'll take this bit of that advice, this bit of this advice. I don't want to get the most optimum here because I like the look of this one more here. Or you can be like, screw you, Clippy. I know what I'm doing. Thank you very much. And the designs which um you know your saved work basically is going to then be um you know sent back to the servers via blockchain and then uploaded uh in real time onto a continuously updated map of uh, the region in question and then this is where the multiplayer element comes in and other people who are playing this you know i like the idea of every region in the world having um having a version of this to play and to kind of train up with. Um, so anyway, so other people in your region who are also playing the game can like go into your map uh, at, just to view it and be like, oh, hey, this is pretty cool. They can offer you to collaborate and then you open up your own map together and you start building stuff like that together. And in that way, it's training communities to kind of, you know, to step into their own power as a, as proactive members of a neighborhood and what i like about it is that if you follow all of the criteria and you do exactly what clippy tells you to do you're learning right you're learning about this that and the other and that prepares you well for when we roll out dimax and the econ the, the the economy app right and at some point in the future when everybody gets on board and the military are like we're not going to bomb this um but then if you um, if you don't, if you just decide to totally freestyle it, and if at the end of it, your design is well liked by the community, then it still gets uploaded, uh, you know, onto the continuously updated map. And in this way, we're really facilitating at a design level, we're really facilitating true democracy, where you're not, not you know, beyond just voting on, on pre-established referendums or even on community decided referendums, we're uplifting the creative power of the individual. I think it was Tim, damn, it's Tim somebody who said that design is too important to be left to the experts. And I wholeheartedly agree. Um, so yeah, we're, we're uplifting like the creative agency of the individual for the sake of the community. And, um, and I, yeah, and that's, that's the part of it that I'm most passionate about. What do you think is the future of the Global Redesign Institute? Um, see, I have a pessimistic streak. Uh, <laughs> but I guess you're saying like, what would I like the future of the Global Redesign Institute to be? Or where do you see it headed? Either where or. do I, either or, okay, gosh. Um, well, if I quell my, uh, the aspects of my disposition, which are pessimistic, I would like to say that, you know, everybody in, you know, it'll be taken up, the game will be uh, distributed in a few communities to start with. Um, it will generally uplift the zeitgeist in terms of, of the regions in question, in terms of creative and dynamic engagement in their own, uh, in their own management. 
and uh, generate the sense of empowerment, empowerment, whereupon, um, whereupon then it can be developed into, you know, uh, all regional data will be like, like, let's, let's say, I'd like to say, maybe governments are like, you know what, it's been, it's been great being a bunch of gosh darn pirates and depleting the earth's resources but um it's not sustainable so here have your data back right and then so we can get the data required to um to bring the global redesign institute into the real world as a as a means of um economic management for communities by communities Mm -hmm. and then you know we can then you know i i would expect then for that to give rise to um to the various uh, elements of a of a happy culture um, that we've already discussed, and you know, failing that, I think if the game is just um, distributed and if it is uh, well received, then I expect that would t- create a demand for um, something similar to happen, you know, in the actual world away from the simulation. And, you know, hopefully that demand would be met with uh, cooperation and, uh, and creativity and a will to get along. I like to, um, I like to back the underdog in that way. And, um, and I like to have faith in people generally. And I also like to think, um, I like to think that you always have, as a scientist, you always have to allow for the scientific possibility that the unlikely thing will happen. And, and you never know, really, like humans can be so crazy and weird. You never know when saying, singing one song lyric will trigger an entire emotional response in somebody else. So, uh, you know, I like to think that things will go smoothly in that sort of way. And, you know, failing that uh well who knows? I, who knows? I, i've been accused i've been accused of uh of putting the onus on people to have a positive vision uh and um i'm not an optimist supremacist like i don't i don't believe that every <laughs> answer needs to be optimistic right um so you know what what is your fear i mean i don't even know how how you would even define failure uh other than maybe everyone in in who's alive in the world forgetting about this idea like i guess that would be considered failure um but as long as it's living in the minds of people then you know could it really be over i don't think so i think um you know what there's a okay do you play do you do you play computer games i play a very small number of computer games have you ever played metal gear solid no Okay, Metal Gear Solid is probably one of the most masterful, amazing computer games ever created. Um, and That's high praise. I might have to try it now. Honestly, you really, really should. Um, it's one of those things that like there are loads of games, um, but the overall arc, the poetry involved in it, the reflection of the military industrial conflict complex and... Uh, Oh, it's just gorgeous. It's just absolutely gorgeous. And anyway, I bring it up because there is a song that was written um, especially for, I think it was, I think it was the third one, which is Peace Walker, which is set in Costa Rica. And it's this beautiful, beautiful song performed by Donna Burke. I can link it to you afterwards. Um, but it's called When Heavens Divide. And there's a line in it, which is, leave it, lead it, I'm sorry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and 
not just blah, my way through all of my slip ups and just try and get my words right the first time. Um, the line is leaving a trace for love to find a way. And, um, and I think that's really lovely because you see the, I don't know how familiar you are with um, Stoic philosophy. Yeah, yeah I'm, so you, I'm familiar with Stoicism. You know that idea of like all that the Stoic can really seek to do is to aim the arrow straight and true and whether or not it hits the target is very much subject to the winds of chance or whether somebody jumps in the way at the last minute or whatever, you know. Um, and so... I know that's that's kind of what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to give as much as I am able to give um, towards this um, this idea in the hope that it will catch on or in the hope that I will, you know, be able to get the resources to take it along somewhere, uh, to take it along its development as much as possible. And um, and to sort of continue to persevere in that uh, hopeful community oriented way mm. and uh and you know if i walk out of the door tomorrow and get hit by a fridge that's or not hit by a fridge flying fridge I was, I was gonna say if someone drops a fridge on me you know like it, right or get hit by a bus if you want to be less weird about it uh, then uh then so be it but i think the idea is just that um you know to quote martin luther king if you can't fly then run. And if you can't run, then walk. And if you can't do that, then crawl. But you have to keep on moving forward. Yes. Um, and so in the spirit of moving forward and continuing to spread the idea, uh, which is hopefully uh, something that we're going to be doing with this conversation here, spreading this idea to more people, for those who are listening and want to look into it further or maybe even potentially get involved with your work, where can they find out more information about the Global Redesign Institute? I have a blog, um, and I think it is www.globaldesigninstitute.wordpress.com. And um, but I will double check that, and then if you want, you can put that in the, the the actual one, just in case that's wrong, into the description. And if there's a contact form on there, and anyone can is very very welcome to reach out. Uh, to me through that um, I also have Twitter and um, an Instagram and yeah just like any kind of involvement even if you just want to shoot the shit like I generally tend to be up for a chat <laughs> so yeah what's your what's your at Twitter oh gosh uh, I don't know <laughs> I don't know I think it might be space flower with some variation of threes for ease but um, I, I've got it pulled up here it's space okay. underscore flower with uh, threes in place of each of the E's. Yes. So so for those of you who are looking, she might be hard to find on Twitter otherwise. So anyway, I wanted to just get the ad in there. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, Anna, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Likewise. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today and to tell everyone about your project. I'm always interested in interviewing people who have interesting projects, interesting ideas going on for the future of society. Um, and uh, yeah, this has been a great time. Thank you. I've had a wonderful time as well. Um, I really appreciate it. I hope you have a good day. You as well.